Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault. This time we are uh, – oh, this is going to be part one of the uh, pair of episodes we did last year called Flatus Ex Machina. Yes. Uh, this one originally published March 26th, 2019. And it's about why it's so funny when machines fail. Yes. Fart out of the machine. Uh, <laughs> what is that uh, – you know, uh, may be wondering what that means. It's basically like what happens when, when AI, uh, despite all – its abilities create something that is just a flop. And why is it so amusing? And what can we learn from that? What does it reveal about artificial intelligence in general? Well, if you want to find out, we'll listen to this episode. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite comedy subjects, what's funny about the way that machines fail. Oh, and here's just a heads up. This is going to be a two-part episode because we ended up going super long. Like the machines, we can't stop. So I want to start with a, a particular example, probably my favorite funny thing on the internet these days, the hilarious almost successes of artificial intelligence <laughs> trying to generate examples of human language. Yeah, almost, but not quite human. Yes. Uh, I don't know why this does it for me, but aside from Highlander 2, The Quickening, pretty much nothing makes me laugh harder than language generated by artificial neural networks and machine learning. And we'll explain a little bit more about exactly how this works in a minute. Uh, but first, I just thought we should look at a few examples of what this is like. If you're on the internet, you've probably encountered this at some point uh, because it's become popular in the past few years, especially for its comedic value. If you're not on the internet, boy, are you in for a treat. Um, by far, I would say the best of this stuff I've come across is traceable back to the blog of a person named Janelle Shane, who uh, I think her day job is she works in industrial research in optics. But as a hobby, she trains neural networks with text-based data, uh, text-based data sets to spit out these amazing simulations of <laughs> types of human language. And so they'll, they'll be in categories like it, she gets an AI program to write recipes for foods yeah. or to come up with the names of paint colors or something. And the way, of course, you would do this is, uh, and we'll explain more of the details in a bit, but you'd train it on existing names of paint colors or you'd train it on existing recipes of food. Right. So the end result here is you essentially have a machine trying to human, but not quite pulling it off. Yes. But, but, but doing so in such hilarious fashion. Yeah, so you should absolutely look up Janelle Shane's blog. It's called AIWeirdness.com. It's reliably such a source of joy. Uh, but I want to start in, in by— In fact, I will say that if, you were, if you're scratching your head and you're thinking, oh, didn't I see something hilarious uh, in this vein recently? Mm -hmm. there's, there's, a, there's a high probability that it originated from AIWeirdness.com. Yes, uh, that, that blog is just awesome. But I wanted to look at a few examples of what this is like. So one thing is consider the work uh, that, that Janelle Shane did, training a neural network work to come up with names for D&D &D spells. Oh, so, yes. So you'd take the Dungeons and Dragons manual and you'd feed in all the actual names of spells to this neural network so it gets a sense of what these things are like. And then it tries to come up with similar types of names on its own. Now, to give everybody just a quick idea, first of what actual Dungeons and Dragons spells uh, are, are named, mm -hmm. you have everything from Magic Missile or Crown of Madness to Evard's Black Tentacles or you know, anytime there's a wizard 
wizard name in there, you know you're in for some good stuff. Um, well, there's you know stuff like Glyph of Warding or uh, ooh, what's the what's the one I'm trying to think of? Oh, stuff like uh, Leo Moon's Secret Chest ooh. or Leo Moon's uh, Tiny Hut. That's another <laughs> great one. Well, so here are the ones that it came up with. How about selections like Mister of Light? Hmm, confusing. Storm of the Gifling. Song of Goom. <laughs> Song of the Darn. Ward of Snade the Pood Beast. <laughs> primal Rear. We've got to watch out for Primal Rear. Summon Storm Bear. Now that one sounds legitimate. Oh, because yeah? That's one of the beauties of these exercises is, is when there's one that either almost works or actually does work because I think Summon Storm Bear, I can, I can easily imagine okay. it. I can describe the Storm Bear uh, blasting out of the portal and uh, rushing into combat on behalf of your, uh, you know, your, your Storm uh, Mage. Yeah, it's almost kind of effortlessly evocative. Yeah. Uh, a divine Boom. How about that, that? That one sounds pretty good, too. Soul of the Bill. Now, now we're sliding <laughs> back down the hill. Fark Mate. How about uh, Charm of the Cods? Maybe. Death of the Sun. Okay. Well, that, it, that's a, that would have to be a high-level spell, but okay. Okay, three more. Greater Flick. Okay, that's that's just a, a cantrip there. That's just a, a flick, a magical flick of the ear. Uh-huh. Curse Clam. I like it. Daving Fire. Dude, that one's confusing. Now, while these phrases, I think, are mostly funny on their own, I think they're probably even funnier if you're an actual D&D player because you not only get the pleasure of the nonsense words and the, you know, the, the syllables that seem out of place in their context, like Dave does not really seem to go very well with some kind of magical fire spell. Right. But if you actually play D&D, you probably also get some humor from just like – seeing the little resonances that these spells have with actual spells that you would recognize. I now want to run a gaming session where there's some sort of um, a warp effect in place where suddenly all the magic users are forced to use spells from this list and they don't know what they're going to exactly do until they cast them. Even better, what if they had to, what if your character suddenly had amnesia and then had to act as if they had bios that were also generated by an artificial neural network? That's right, because AIWeirdness.com also has a wonderful uh, piece titled D&D Character Bios now making slightly more sense. In fact, I would say this post from, I think this was last week or something we were looking at, I think this inspired me to want to do this episode. Well, we should read a couple of these. Okay. Uh, I'll read the first one here. Quote, Frick found his old family's fortune and his curiosity, and he went to a small city to see if he could find a work in the goldfish. (laughs) He heard stories of a goldfish, a goldfish, a sea monster, and a silverfish, a sea monster, and a ship that was a ship of exploration. The ship was full of fish and evil, (laughs) some treasure, but it was not to be. When Frick found the ship, he rushed back and found the ship full of treasure and full of fish. He wanted to be a pirate and fight it. <laughs> now, I like that because there's a, there's a lot of silliness in there, but it does have the basic shape of a bio. And, and, and in its weirdness and it's the stuff that is more nonsensical mm-hmm. actually feels suitably magical and fantastic. You know, that there's this, this fish that's not a fish that's also a ship that's full of treasure and fish, and he's going to become a pirate and fight it. It's like, I, I 
I think you could run with that. This is one of the fascinating things about neural net generated text is that it often has the format of what you're going for correct. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't have the sense of it correct. Right. Uh, like it will aesthetically and in shape be very much like what you're looking for, but key words do not make any sense at all. Then again, another one uh, that I thought was kind of interesting in what it showed about common themes in in D&D character bios, or I guess maybe fantasy more generally, was one bio that included the lines, um, the orc warlock was captured and killed by a group of orcs. He was imprisoned and forced to work for a giant tome. He was imprisoned and imprisoned for a while until he was rescued by a group of adventurers. He was imprisoned and imprisoned for a while until he was rescued by a group of adventurers who were looking for a group of adventurers to help eradicate the orcish ferocity. See, now that's wonderful. I actually really like that one. It's a little, you know, nonsensical, but uh, first of all, you know, being an orc is hard. Uh, mm-hmm. It's 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 a warlike uh, uh, world for the orc. Uh, but uh, but then the idea that he's working for a giant tome, the uh, idea that there's like a magical book employing him, and the, the the repetitive imprisonment. And, yeah, and it's like, a hard knock life. You're always getting imprisoned and then escaping and encountering a band of adventurers. Yeah, and working for weird magic books. So, so that one that one works, I think. Of course, another great one on this page is an entry that. Just just seems to devolve into endless, like dozens of repetitions of variations of the phrase big cat. Yes. Little did he know during the monastery's course of time, when the monastery's training and growth was complete, his mother told big cat, big cat, and big cat to drive their own path and test big cat with big cat's army (laughs) of big cat's army of big cats and big cats and big cats. Big cat is big cat, big cat, and it goes on. Yes, like for some time. Uh, for for many many <laughs> lines. Uh, I'm trying to picture big cat. Uh, I, though I can't, re- I don't actually go to like tiger or lion there. Mm-hmm. I think more of a, a kind of mental power, great basilisk type of fat house cat. I think that would work. I, I also can't help but think of Cheshire cats and, uh, of course, cat bus from Totoro as being sort of in the vein of big cat, big cat, big cat. Um, <laughs> Uh, how about a neural networks trained on a corpus of more than 43,000 question and answer style jokes? Uh, I'll just read one of them. Why do you call a pastor cross the road? He take the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another uh, great one uh, from AIWeirdness.com was uh, a neural network designs Halloween costumes. Okay, so you just feed it a bunch of Halloween costume names. Yeah, and this one this one was tremendous fun. Uh, I remember when it first came out, it just made me laugh so hard. Uh, highlights include uh, Saxy Pumpkins. <laughs> um, <laughs> Disco Monster, uh-huh. uh, Spartan Gandalf. I really like that one. Starfleet Shark. Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, let's see. Martian Devil. That one's too believable. Panda Clam, though. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. <laughs> Shark Cow. That's very interesting given uh, some of our past discussions on uh, – was it a shark cow that we were discussing? I believe it was. Oh, that was uh, – that's Daniel Dennett's thought experiment yeah. exposing what he believes to be flaws in Donald Davidson's, Donald Davidson's uh, Swamp Man thought experiment. It was the cow shark where he says, is, right, it, yes. is it actually meaningful if you posit a cow shark to ask whether it's a cow or a shark? Well, a little accidental uh, uh, thought experiment here uh, from this list uh, – 
You'll find less thought experimentation in such entries, though, as Snape (laughs) Snape Scarecrow. Or, uh, or uh, how about <laughs> Lady Garbage? Oh, Lady Garbage. Lady Garbage is yeah. good. Uh, so, yeah, there, there are a lot of great, great entries on that list. Okay, one last thing from Janelle Shane's work. I just must mention some some titles for recipes that she wrote a script to come up with. Um, these include chocolate pickle sauce, whole mm. chicken cookies, <laughs> salmon beef style chicken bottom. <laughs> Artichoke gelatin dogs and crockpot cold water. <laughs> <laughs> these are now, were, were any of these attempted? These recipes? Uh, well, actually, at one point she so th- those were just names. At some point, I don't have these uh, selected, but she did have it based on a corpus of recipes. Generate new recipes, which are just nightmares. You know, <laughs> like huge lists of ingredients that would be like you know a, a third cup smorgles, uh, you know, a, a cup of horseradish. Then <laughs> uh, there was one website. I saw, I don't remember who actually did it. it might have been Super Deluxe. Somebody made a video mm-hmm. where they took one of these AI generated recipes and just literally made it. Now you. They had some trouble because some of the ingredients were not real words. They're just, you know. Yeah. like yeah. Uh, So they had to, I guess, substitute something or they put in instead of smorgles, it was cocoa powder or something. But they ended up with these like uh, 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 pasta shells, I think, that <laughs> had like chocolate and stuff all over them. But anyway, so that I think that's currently one of the best websites on the Internet. Go to AIWeirdness.com if you want more joy and humor. But um but I, I was wondering, why is this the funniest thing out there for me right now? What, what is so inherently funny about the ways machines create things that are sort of like real language, just close enough to be in the zone where they are funny, but at the same time far enough off that they're they're totally hilarious? And I think that there are at least two parts uh, that make this this stuff so golden. One is that there's something inherently funny about machines trying to behave like humans and failing. Specifically, it's the ways that they fail. And we'll we'll definitely explore this more throughout the episode. But the way that they fail demonstrates a kind of pristine, oblivious quality of stupidity. It's like a kind of platonic stupidity, isolated mm-hmm. from the ability to appreciate itself. It's like the funniness of, you know, watching automatic doors repeatedly trying to close on something that's blocking them like that. That's not itself so funny, but you see an inkling of the same thing there that comes through in these AI generated texts. But then uh, we sort of mentioned this earlier. It's also funny because it tends to reveal something interesting about the human culture game that it's trying to play. Like it brings this sort of cold objectivity to phenomena that we don't necessarily always bring. And it can identify and awkwardly replicate trends and behaviors that we might fail to notice in the same way that like you might notice funny things that are actually present in the names of D&D spells by watching a computer try and replicate them. Yeah. Yeah, I think these are, these are, these are two strong reasons. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. All right, we're back. Now, with all things humor, and of course, we'll get into this in this episode as we continue to discuss what humor is and then why machines, in some cases, achieve it. Like, the absurd is 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 funny. Like, the, yeah. the absurdity is hilarious. And... It seems seems like we're in a situation where uh, a lot of times some of the especially these neural net uh, situations we're 
we, we're accidentally creating absurdity engines. We're creating machines that that produce absurdity. And uh, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, what can you say? Like, why is why is something that is absurd funny? You know, because it, it, we'll get into all that in a bit. But but sometimes I feel like the answer might be. It's funny because it's funny. You know? yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely an ineffable quality of, uh, of, of humor that is one of the reasons there are so many different theories of humor. Mm-hmm. And we, as I said, we'll explore them more as the episode goes on. But um, yeah, it's obviously something that's really hard to, to narrow down and put your finger on. It's, uh, the, there seem to be all these strange, conflicting, overlapping reasons we find things funny. Uh, but I do feel like this strain of machine humor, machine failure humor being one of the funniest types of humor uh, is bigger than just the AI text uh, because it got me – I started thinking about what are some of the funniest scenes in movies I can think of. And when I tried to think about that, I can't help but think of the dark humor of the hyper-violent boardroom scene in RoboCop with Ed 209. Oh, yeah. I, I would argue one of the – I mean it's not for children. This is like a hyper-violent, horrible uh, scene. But it's also in, in, a, in a morbid way one of the funniest scenes. I think in film history <laughs> and like and so why is it so funny I think it hinges on parallels between humans and machines in the scene and the similarities in the ways they fail uh, so a brief recap of the scene is uh, you know uh, Ronnie Cox plays this uh, you know self-serious bloviating businessman who's proudly proclaiming hey, you know I've got the technology that's the future of policing mm-hmm. and he brings out this robot called Ed 209 that's got these big guns on it and they're saying that it's going to take over the police force and it's this great new technology and then they demonstrate it on a guy and it malfunctions and uh, it, it tells him to drop his weapon in the demonstration and he does and it doesn't seem to notice he has and then it shoots him like a hundred times. Yeah, just a ridiculous amount of times. Yeah. And But it's something about the way that the, the the people in the room fail in the same way the machine does. Like he just plows through this this horrible, violent encounter. And then afterwards, somebody in the background is like, can we get a paramedic after this guy has been shot like a hundred times? As if like the machine, they're just sort of like carrying on their like rote behaviors without understanding what they're doing or thinking about them. Yeah, the, the ED-209 is such a great design in, in the original RoboCop. Uh, because it um, it it resembles it has animal qualities to it. It, yeah. it looks kind of like a bipedal dinosaur, mm-hmm. uh, and, and yet it's also smooth and abstract in so many ways that it looks like either a, a highly designed piece of technology, which of course it is. It has you know it looks like it's a, a nice piece of stereo equipment, uh-huh. uh, but but then it also lacks any additional details. Like it's almost a silhouette. Of a li- of an animal, yes, um, yeah, yeah. and it growls, yeah, and it growls as well. But then also later, a really funny scene in the movie is the discovery that this horrible, violent killer robot is def- can be defeated by stairs. Like right. it can't use stairs. Yeah, it has these wonderful, like all terrain looking um, uh, legs that it walks on, and yeah. yet it can't manipulate stairs. It falls down them, and then it's it's like a, a you know a ridiculous upside down duckling. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so hilarious, too, because, I mean, Ed 209 is highly effective in other situations. Right. If it's just filling a guy with bullets, 
highly effective. Right. <laughs> um, just battling RoboCop, also highly effective for the uh-huh. most part. Um, and this falls in line, I think, pretty well with our experiences of machines and of AI. We can create highly effective specialists in many areas of AI and robotics. Uh, so, yeah, create a machine that just puts bullets into the sky, mm-hmm. uh, you know, does a great job. But when it comes to creating a general AI or, or a machine that can navigate the complex natural or even or the human created world, mm-hmm. such as the stairs, uh, th- there's continual challenge there. Like that's kind of, that's that's what a lot of, of what's going on in robotics and AI is about. Yeah, or the, just recognizing that it's not actually supposed to shoot the board executive during the demonstration. Exactly, yeah. But then also just uh, the idea that it's, it, it's wonderful at something and terrible at another thing. That imbalance is is often where we find a lot, a lot of hilarity in other, um, you know, in other co- comedic stories and bits of fiction or just situations. Like one, one of my favorite um, cut scenes of all time is from Conan the Barbarian. Uh, so there's a scene in it where Conan, this is the Arnold Schwarzenegger original. There's It's like a blooper outtake, right? Yeah, it's a blooper outtake. You find it, I think, most of the special DVDs. It's available on YouTube as well. Uh-huh. Uh, but basically Conan has just uh, escaped or been released from servitude and he's running across the, the you know, the, the, the wasteland essentially. Uh-huh. Wild dogs are chasing him in order to 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 eat his flesh he manages in the, the finished film to scramble up some rocks and that begins this new story arc him discovering this great old sword but this is like young corporal beef body giant arnold schwarzenegger this is the yeah this is the arnold schwarzenegger that was so ripped he had to like lose muscle so that he could actually hold the sword correctly <laughs> uh so there's this uh, outtake though where he's running in chains, the dogs are chasing him, uh-huh. and the movie dogs, and then he's scrambling up the stones, and the dogs catch him yes. and drag him back <laughs> down, and he's just screaming, ah, and, and cursing the whole time. Yeah, it's, uh, I watched it uh, after you linked it, very, very funny, and you see the PAs come in to, like, get yeah, the dogs off the of dogs him, off of him, and he's like, ah, ah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because the idea of Conan the Barbarian, or even just prime Arnold failing like this is just a st- in stark contrast to actual or perceived strength of the character and or individual. Yes. And it's also funny because he wasn't actually mauled to death by movie dogs. Right. Of course, he wasn't actually seriously harmed in this incident, but he was apparently uh, inconvenienced and had his pride wounded. Right. And, and we'll come back to that idea, too, the, the, the degree to uh, to which, uh, you know, the, the severity of the outcome um, uh, comes into play in determining if something is funny or not. Yeah, I think I can definitely see what you're talking about, that the failures of technology are especially funny when there are other ways that the technology is highly uh, advanced or presented as highly advanced. Right. And as long as like nobody, of course, dies. Right. You know, um, but but I do wonder, too, if there's a darker streak in all of this, too, uh, you know, something that the ties into a deeply rooted human disdain for the other, especially for others of species. Uh, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, The Wardrobe, and the Four Children. That's my son's suggested alternate title for it. He's <laughs> okay. like, like, why don't they call it uh, uh, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, and the, the Four Children? Like, they're in it too, and they're not in the title. Uh, seems like a missed opportunity. But anyway, uh, there's this wonderful quote from it that I find, uh, I found kind of creepy on a recent reread uh, of the book. Quote, But in general, take my advice. When you meet anything that is going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. 
Well, that is very creepy. Now, I think in the context of the book, this is going to be referring to like, uh, you know, possessed objects and stuff, like oh, creepy yeah, yeah. magical basically, stuff. Yeah, basically the message here was talking animals are cool. You know, you can hang out with them in Narnia, uh, but there are other things in Narnia that are dangerous, and you can tell if they're dangerous based on how human they seem they're, they're trying to be or used to be. Well, that's one thing in a in a fantasy context, in a, in a science fiction or even just a real technology context. That's that's a different thing entirely, and starts making you think about, uh, well, you know, fear of advancing uh, technology mimicking human behavior, fears of AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To what extent do we delight in the the falls and errors of inhuman entities because we don't wish to see them succeed? You know, we we celebrate the the telltale signs of their otherness because we kind of dread the day when there will be no way to tell. And I think there's a lot. To, there's a strong argument to be made that that day will be here sooner than we think, and in many respects, it already is. We've talked about, uh, for instance, robocalls mm-hmm. on the show before, um, and and just how, and also chatbots. Yeah, and to, 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 it becomes frightening when you look at where we are with the technology now. Um, certainly, you get a robocall; it's not going, hopefully, not going to. Um, uh, deceive you long term. But I think a lot of us are having that experience where you pick one of these up and at first you think it is a human you are talking to and then you realize that it is not. Well, I think one of the funny things about stuff like chatbots, which also deal in language mm-hmm. but can be much, much more convincing than these uh, these neural networks that generate you know lists of uh, – a uh, list of character bios or something is that the things that are generally more convincing these days are programmed, I think, with more explicit rules. They tend to have more kind of human meddling in exactly what they're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. And by having less freedom to be creative and all that, uh, and ultimately having less potential, they can actually be more kind of narrowly convincing. Yeah. The I think one of the things that's interesting about the, the neural network generated text is that it's not anywhere close yet. You know, you can't really use it yet to make things where you go like, yeah, that's definitely a real human. I mean, maybe you can in some, again, narrow scenarios. But well, yeah, well, like, for instance, uh, if you have a something that will tell you what your Wu-Tang clan name will be, uh-huh. you know, these sort of r- the random generation uh, systems, which are a totally different, different thing. Uh, and we'll get into the distinction here in a bit. But, you know, systems like that, just through sheer random um, matching of words, those can be uh, effective. Yeah. But it, it doesn't mean that uh, it's, it's, you know, it's an entirely different kettle of fish in, in terms of, of uh, what's going on with neural networks and where uh, they seem to be going. Well, maybe we should take a quick break and then when we come back, we can explain just the basics of how this, these kind of things actually work. All right, we're back. So I'm going to try to do the simple version of how a neural network works because if you get in the weeds, obviously neural networks become extremely complicated. Uh, I know I I spent a lot of time deep in a bunch of articles trying to understand technical details that I'm not actually going to end up using here. Um, so th- the simple version is think of a neural network as a machine that transforms values. That's it. You know, it, it has values that come in, like number variables, mm-hmm. and then it puts out values at the end. It's like uh, it's kind of like the toaster conveyor belt at Quiznos or one of those sandwich <laughs> shops. You know, your untoasted sandwich comes in, toasted sandwich comes out. 
if everything goes according to plan. Now, if it doesn't go according to plan, maybe it spits out something that's on fire or something that, uh, you know, who knows what goes on. In yeah, there. Or, or nothing comes out because the bagels are building up inside of it, right? Exactly. But a neural network's core job is to just accept inputs and produce outputs. Okay, an example would be image recognition. There are neural networks designed to look at an image, a digital image, and come up with a text string that says, this is what that is. So look at a picture of a dog and say, that's a dog. And you've probably seen examples of this on the web. So you'd have numerical values going in. It might be things like, uh, you know, be a field of pixels with numerical values for their color and placement. Mm -hmm. And then it would have an output that's, uh, say, a string of text, which would actually be like a ranking, like the top ranked string of text that matches with those pixels in that configuration. But so the question is, what's going on inside the machine? How does it turn that input into the correct matching output? And then, then of course, how does it fail? Because I've also found this tremendously amusing um tumblr uh-huh. um re- recently changed their guidelines about what's acceptable content and what's not yeah and stuff to blow your mind uh had has slash had a tumblr account uh-huh. uh recently just rebranded it as the transgenesis tumblr account but it had a lot of old stuff to blow your mind content on there and suddenly i got a page of all the things that had been flagged for um for potentially violating the new terms. Uh-huh. And it was amusing because some of it was like, okay, well, that has a, a classical painting on it. It's got like a, you know, it's a, it, it, there's something that might look like nudity and so it got flagged. Makes okay. sense. Uh, or the topic is something that is a little too sketchy uh, for them and they're like, okay, that's been flagged by the machine. Mm-hmm. But the most hilarious one was a picture of a baby bat on uh, on somebody's palm, mm-hmm. and that was flagged as, uh, as as likely inappropriate. And so I was just trying to figure <laughs> that one out. Like, what is it about a baby bat that it? I mean, did it think this was genitalia, or uh-huh. like like what? Because because I, I know it somehow clicked off a number of boxes, mm-hmm. and when and then the automated was, result was no baby bats on Tumblr. Well, I guess I I don't know if you know, but I don't know what the mechanism for identifying that is. It might be something like this, mm-hmm. but yeah, that I love seeing that kind of. And notice that we are laughing now, like it, or we were yeah, laughing. It, it is funny that it looks at that and says, I don't know about this bad. I think this might right. be porno. Yeah. I mean, and the stakes are pretty low. I ultimately, one picture of a baby bat no longer on a Tumblr page that we don't really use doesn't really affect me personally. But you could see where this could lead to, uh, to, to far worse problems uh, if, if given, given the right scenario. Okay, so so back to the neural network. So you've got this machine. Inside the machine, values are being transformed. You have inputs and outputs. And so inside, on the inside, a neural network consists of layers of sort of stations of value transformation that are called referred to as neurons. And each neuron essentially accepts a series of numerical values as input. And then it just performs some kind of mathematical transformation of those values based on what's known as uh, the weights of its connections with the sources it received the inputs from. So you've got these interlinking sources of information, inputs and outputs throughout. And each neuron takes inputs, sums them, does some transformation, and produces an output. So for each neuron, you've got a bunch of numbers coming from different sources. Each one gets treated with a certain bias based on where it came from. And then the neuron spits out a new value. And these neurons exist in layers. So there are these waves of inputs, say uh, the pixels in an image, getting passed and transformed through one layer after another of these neurons until finally the network produces numbers that constitute its final outputs. In this case, 
This would be something like its top guesses at the word string that describes the image you put in at the beginning. Now, you'll see from this that the value of a neural network depends completely on how well those connections between neurons are weighted to produce the correct results. If they just have random weights, then the network will just produce random output. It won't be any better than making up numbers at random. So the network has to be calibrated or trained somehow to produce outputs that are correct. And there are multiple ways to do this. Uh, it, of course, could be programmed to some degree by hand, right? You could have a programmer explicitly uh going in and tinkering with waiting rules to try to get the outcomes to be better. But it can, it can also be trained through machine learning, which is a process where inputs are already associated with correct outputs. Like you've already got a text string associated with the image that you put in. And you say, this is what you should say when it comes out. And each time it runs the process, it checks to see how far off from the correct known output that it was, and then tries to change the internal waiting to get closer to the correct answer. And of course, with automatic machine learning, you can do this at scale. You can do it thousands of times. You could potentially do it millions of times, just training over and over. And you might be able to see a parallel here with one of the ways that we actually learn. Uh, you know, we, we learn in multiple ways. Sometimes we learn by being taught explicit rules to follow. Like if we're learning in school what an insect is, we might learn that an insect is a small animal with an exoskeleton that has six legs. Or uh, sometimes, on the other hand, we learn to generalize from particulars. We might see lots of animals, pictures of lots of animals, and notice that the ones that are called insects all happen to have six legs and exoskeletons, and th th therefore we derive this category called insect from that survey. And in logic, of course, this, this process where we come up with general rules from lots of individual examples is known as induction. So machine learning to train neural networks is kind of like allowing computers to learn categories by induction, kind of like we do when we just go out and look at the world and see what we find. But one of the things that really sets humans apart from computers is that humans seem to have this amazing, remarkable ability to generalize from particulars. We can often get the gist of a category from just a, a tiny handful of examples, you know, mm -hmm. when you're giving somebody examples of something to like give them the gist of what you're talking about, you don't usually need to list a million examples. You can list two or three maybe or sometimes even just one. Yeah, this gets into the idea of uh, judging a book by its cover, right? Yeah. Not supposed to, but – we often do, and sometimes you you can if you pick up on particular things on you know specifically to use the book example, uh, specific things about the design or the era of the cover. Yeah, uh, yeah, and in fact, sometimes you can you can judge things about the contents of a book just by knowing certain things about how certain types of books end up with certain types of covers. You right, know? yeah. Uh, like you might think, I tend to like books that have hand-drawn illustrations on the cover more than I like books that have sort of like CGI stock image C cover photos. Right. Which uh, means you probably like books from, you know, the, at least the 1980s uh, and before. Yeah. Because uh, it seems like we have, we have far fewer hand-drawn, uh, uh, you know, covers on books these days. Yeah. Why are people putting stock photos on the covers of books. I do not get it. Yeah. But you, you didn't need to read a million books to come to that conclusion. You could probably come to that conclusion after reading, I don't know, three books. Right. Like you, you really, we get the gist of things really fast and 
that that's in contrast to computers, which really, really don't at all. This is one of those strange and amazing things about neuroscience, about the human brain. How do we solve such a difficult problem as generalizing from particulars with so few examples to draw from? And of course, another uh, example of the generalizing power of the human brain is in language, like we've been talking about. Like, how is it that most of the time kids learn how to speak a language without being taught explicit rules of syntax and grammar and the definitions and usages of all the common words and without hearing billions and billions of examples of sentences. They just pick it up. Well, there's there there are some specific answers to that. I yeah. believe we've talked about that on the show before. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that there there is a good case to be made that the human brain is specially geared toward language acquisition in childhood. Right. That's sort of like one of our species' superpowers. Yes, and then those windows... Uh, close or they don't completely close, but they uh, – the windows uh, become much smaller later mm-hmm. on in life. You know, speaking of children, they, you know, they are also frequently a font of weirdness and beauty as they too are learning to function uh, in the human world, in the, in the adult human world. Yeah. And then they say and do things that sometimes hit a, a weird zone that is either hilarious or sometimes a little frightening. Yes. Or, or even a little bit elegant. Yes. You know? I, I know exactly what you mean. Like kids often do the same funny outputs based on induction that these machine learning algorithms do. Mm-hmm. Like you can see it's funny in the same way that they might say something that's a little bit off and kind of absurd, but you can sort of understand the rules that got them there. Right. Like one example I always refer to is from years and years ago. I went to a, a children's puppet show. This is before I had a kid. My, my wife and I went to check this out because it was actors from a local improv uh, uh, group, uh, Dad's Garage here uh-huh. in Atlanta. They put on this show um, – Uncle Grandpa's Houdini story time, I think it was. Okay. And so you had these sort of seasoned, uh, you know, improv vets, and they were doing a, a puppet show for kids, mm-hmm. and they were taking uh, ideas from the audience. And mm-hmm. they said, like, who should our main character be? And so they hand the mic to some little little girl in the front row, and she says, Batman the girl, Ooh. which which is so hilarious. And I don't think an adult would be able to come up with that. But it, you can sort of tease it apart and figure out how she got there, mm-hmm. you know, with it. But uh, – but it's it's just one of you know many examples. I'm sure that that anyone with children in their life can can turn to where they come up with something that is just so goofy or weird or or sometimes terrifying. Well, I think the the real funniness and pleasure in that is that it's Batman the girl and not Batgirl. Right. Yeah. Like it's almost there, and but by not being there, it's it's also. <laughs> like it's it's even better. Mm-hmm. Like it's not yeah it's not Batgirl. It's Batman the girl. It's just so nonsensical uh, and and beautiful at the same time. You know another one of the great uh, AI text generation experiments that Janelle Shane did on her blog was uh, was generating uh, the you know those Valentine's Day candy hearts. Oh yes the, yes. Mm-hmm. She had a program sample those and then try to come up with examples and ended up saying things I think like uh, like uh, sweat poo and hole and uh, time hug. Time hug sounds good. Time I mean, hug, yeah. Time it's like time cop. Yeah, but it also sounds like something that – like it might be a term that aliens come up with for mm-hmm. human love. It's like they engage not in a hug but in a time hug. Yeah. 
it is as if they are hugging for the rest of their lives, uh, you know, or something like that. Um, uh, another one, all hover, and then finally, bog love. Well, um, my, my son, who uh, as of this recording is, is six, almost seven, mm-hmm. uh, he, he drew a picture for my wife and I for, for Valentine's, mm-hmm. when Valentine's uh, Day card he did at school. And it depicted dinosaurs, uh, as he's wont to do, um, and there, there are some herbivores uh, walking about. There are some carnivores uh, eating the flesh of fallen dinosaurs. Uh-huh. And then, as is typical in, in paleo art, uh, there may be a volcano in the background, but then there is uh, a meteor coming in hard and fast. Right. And, the killer asteroid. Yeah, and he writes, uh, I love you <laughs> on, the, on the meteor, uh, which, which is absolutely wonderful because it's like it, at once it is like, like this is beautiful. Like he, he totally means all of this and it's like the most beautiful Valentine I've ever received. Mm-hmm. And yet to put it on the, the instrument of, um, of, the, of the extinction event mm-hmm. is just so uh, weird and like it, it uh, accidentally brilliant, you know? Yeah, I saw that when you put it on the internet. It was the sweetest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it was so good. And it's like, yeah, this is that. This is how love works. Love is a is a destroyer as well as a creator. Now, now we do want to stress that with the, especially with these text based uh, situations, uh, we're not talking about mere random mashups of text, uh, such as like the Wu Tang Clan name generator, or um, uh, a more more literary example would be the cut up technique popularized by uh, author William S. Burroughs, uh, where you just have like a, a, a random. Um, mechanism in play to sort of splice words or or sentences together to get something uh, that may have sort of accidental meaning to it. No, the, the neural net uh, programs, are they are algorithms attempting as best they can to approximate the quality of the, the input texts, right. the texts they're trained on. So they're doing their best to make something like this. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, one of the things is you might say, well, why don't they just perfectly spit back out the text you've trained them on? In fact, if you don't tell them not to, they'll do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll just spit back in exactly what you fed in, you have to sort of like change some values and tinker with it to prevent uh, what's known as overfitting in this world uh, to sort of force the algorithms to be more creative and try to come up with new versions of the kind of thing they've seen instead of just completely copying what you fed them. Yeah, because we want these machines to uh, rule the world, not just Hollywood, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, we also have to, to distinguish that we're also not talking about fake AI-generated text, which can certainly be tremendously uh, entertaining as well. Yes, that's such a great genre. Uh, people pretending to be neural networks creating machine learning generated text. Right. Uh, which It's such an amazing reversal of principles that humans have intuitively detected what's funny about machine learning generated text and then made fake human designed versions of it to exploit that inherent humor. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how you get deeper on the irony pit than that. Yeah, there was a wonderful 2018 tweet by comedian uh, Keaton Patty, and this was the tweet. Quote, I forced a bot to watch over a thousand hours of Olive Garden commercials and then asked it to write an Olive Garden commercial of its own. Here is the first page. Uh, and uh, and then he proceeded to uh, include the images of this text, uh, this script rather, uh, for an Olive Garden commercial, mm-hmm. and and it's filled with hilarious nonsense like "I shall eat Italian citizens" <laughs> and "unlimited stick" and play, seeming you know to play upon the whole um, catchphrase of uh, what uh, 
when you're here, your home, I think. When you're here, your family. When you're here, your family. Um, there's, there's one that, uh, from this, uh, this fake script that says, leave without me, I'm home, <laughs> which I just, I, I love. I remember laughing so hard at this when it came out as well. I love it. The waitress says lasagna wings with extra Italy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But there's also like really funny stage directions in it. Uh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. You mentioned the infinite uh, where it says like we the gluten classico. <laughs> we believe the waitress that it is from the kitchen. We have no reason not to believe. Yeah. Now, of course, this is just a comedian doing this thing, trying to pretend to be an AI. Um, but I was reading an article where they quoted Janelle Shane, the author of the AI weirdness blog, who trains all these neural networks to come up with all this funny stuff we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. And, you know, she talks about the, there are ways to notice uh, when something was probably written by a human instead of by an actual AI. Mm-hmm. Both can be absurd in similar funny ways. But one of the problems with this script uh, in passing as a real AI generated text is that it's actually too coherent. Mm-hmm. Like its memory, its memory is too long. It remembers characters from many lines earlier and still has them appearing and saying things. Uh, actual AI generated texts have a much shorter memory. They, they're not consistent in that way. They don't make actually they make even less sense than the fake olive garden commercial so she's saying don't reach for your hatchet on this one no okay because a real neural net generated text only mimics forms it doesn't mimic meaning and uh, this thing it it's it means too much it's too clever Okay, so we're going to go ahead and close out this episode now. But again, there is going to be a part two where we continue this discussion and really get more into the meat of the topic. In the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the show. There's also a little button at the top. You can click on that. Go to our T-shirt store. Get T-shirt stickers with a number of cool designs, designs that line up with certain show topics like the Great Basilisk or various squirrel episodes, uh, as well as just uh, you know show logo um, uh, material as well. And if you want to support the show, the best thing that you can do is rate and review Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you have the power to do so, Where you get this podcast, give us some stars, give us a nice review. It really helps us out in our war against the almighty algorithms. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.